Well, it is the last Sunday before Christmas, and uh, so I wanted to preach a really good Christmas sermon. Wanted to give you a really nice, warm, Christmassy kind of a, a, a passage, and so naturally, I've decided to take you to Ephesians chapter six, verses five through nine, a passage about slaves and their masters. Uh, we're continuing in our walk through the book of Ephesians, and I'm trusting in the providence of the Lord above my own wisdom in sort of, you know, cutting off the series and, and doing unique sort of Christmas messages. We're just going to keep right on walking through uh, this uh, passage, uh, this portion of the Word of God, and I trust that He has a wisdom for us to gain. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, we'll continue. Uh, our series today. Um, we have been in uh, the, the second half, the latter half of the book of Ephesians, um, which are spelling out how Christians should live, right? The first three chapters are all about what Christians believe, and really more importantly than that, what God has done to make us new people, right? We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. We were united to Christ by faith. We were brought back to life. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us we were spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, and yet God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive together with Christ. We've been uh, united with one another as, as we're united to Christ. We've been adopted into the family of God as his brothers and sisters, and Therefore, as brothers and sisters of one another. And so he's taken disparate and different and distinct peoples and, and united them into one new humanity in the church. The people of God, Jew and Gentile, who call upon the name of Jesus and trust in him for their salvation, have become one people by faith. And this all the sheer work of the grace of God in our lives. Not by works, lest anyone should boast but simply by his grace through faith that he actually gave to us as a gift. And he did that so that we might walk in the good works that he prepared for us to walk in, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And so the second half of Ephesians has been all about those good works. Here's what it looks like for Christians who believe that God has raised them from the dead, given them new spiritual life, and united them to each other. Here's what it looks like to live out that faith to live out the gospel. And so we've seen uh, all manner of inst ethical instructions about how we should treat other people and how we should live within the community of faith as the church. The most recent context uh, comes from chapter 5, verse 21, where he said that, that we all within the church ought to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he gives three individual relationships where there is an authority and a submission at play. Uh, and he begins in each of those three cases by addressing first the, the party that is called to submit, that is the, the vulnerable party in those relationships. And so he begins in chapter 5, verse 22, speaking to wives and calling them to submit to their husbands. And then he speaks of the, the character of husband's leadership being loving and sacrificial and uh, initiative-taking. And then he spoke in verse, chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, uh, to children and their parents, calling children to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
uh, and he called parents and fathers particularly to a kind of character with which they carry out that leadership, not being harsh, not uh, provoking your children to anger, but bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, namely discipling their children. And now he turns in verses five through uh, nine to slaves and their masters. Um, We're going to read the passage and then we'll talk a little bit about slavery, the kind of asterisk that's in all of our minds when we read a passage like this. uh, And then we'll see what I believe the Spirit of God has for us uh, to live by uh, from this passage. Let Let me read for you Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let's talk about slavery for just a minute, right? When you read a passage like this, obviously the question comes flooding to you. Wait, what's going on here? I thought slavery was over. I thought slavery was evil. Why isn't Paul just saying, hey, by the way, slavery should be dead. Let's not do that anymore. Like, why is he just giving instructions to slaves and telling them, in fact, to obey their masters? This seems a little bit uh, counterintuitive uh, to us. So a few thoughts uh, on slavery. First of all, slavery was an economic reality uh, in Paul's day, so common in the Greco-Roman culture that it could not be avoided. In fact, it's estimated by some that uh, just about half of the population within the Roman Empire would have been slaves at some level or for some period of time, right? So at any given moment, it could be as many as half of the people who lived within the Roman Empire were actually in servitude to somebody else. It was an extremely common, uh, common reality. So if Paul is to address households as he's doing, marriage, parenting, it makes sense for there to be a section that addresses slaves and slaveholders, as it were, um, because it was very common. You could be almost certain that within any given congregation of Christians, there would have been families who had slaves. And so he's simply addressing the parties that are likely to be within earshot of the letter as it's read aloud. As we spoke last week, that included children, right? Paul addresses children because he trusts and expects that children will be hearing this letter as it's read. And in the same way, Paul expects that there will be those who are slaves who are gathered with the church and hearing this letter as it's read when Christians gather for worship. So it is a common and unavoidable reality uh, within that day and time. Now, as we've noted before, when we encounter a similar passage to this in 1 Peter chapter 2 earlier this year, Peter does something very similar. He addresses slaves and their masters, and he calls slaves to submit to their masters out of their love for and obedience to Christ. It's a very similar message. And so we talked about this some uh, several months ago. 
but first century Roman slavery was not the same institution as American chattel slavery of the 17th through 19th centuries, right? What comes to our minds when we think about slavery is uh, much more recent in our history, and obviously our nation still bears the, the marks and the sort of uh, wounds of, of that uh, injustice. And so when we hear something about slaves and masters and that arrangement, we immediately think of what we know, what we're familiar with because of our more recent history, and it seems very difficult for us to sort of p reconcile these two things. How could the Bible speak, not necessarily condoningly, but not with sort of outright rejection uh, of the system of slavery. And part of that is because the slavery that Paul is thinking of and writing to is a very different kind of slavery than what we are familiar with and what comes to our minds. Um, for a, a few examples of that, uh, there were no ethnic, there was no ra uh, ethnic or racial basis uh, for slavery in that day. When we think of slavery, we think Africans, African-Americans were enslaved by white people. That wasn't the case in the Greco-Roman world. There, there was no class or race or ethnicity that sort of defined whether somebody could become a slave. There, it was very uh, a mixed in, in that way. And so there wasn't a racial basis for it. Uh, slavery was often uh, a voluntary arrangement in that time. Um, whereas American chattel slavery was really based on kidnapping and enslaving people against their will, often slavery in this day was a voluntary arrangement that a person would enter for a defined period of time for the purpose of, uh, of uh, paying off uh, debts, either personal debts or family debts or whatever. And so there would be an agreement, an arrangement made where I would enter servitude for this person or this family for a period of time in order to pay off a debt that was owed. It was, a, it was an economic um, strategy of sorts, and it was really common, as, as we've already said. And so sometimes, oftentimes, this slavery was entered willingly. That wasn't always the case. Some slavery was uh, the result of basically uh, prisoners of war, like where one nation would conquer the other nation. And of course, in the Roman Empire, that happened a lot. Uh, they would conquer a people, and then uh, they would take these captives and sort of make them slaves to various uh, Roman families or whatever, right? And so uh, that was another aspect of how people became slaves. Uh, it was also possible for the work of slaves to be in respectable, even prestigious contexts. Uh, again, that was not the case in, generally speaking, in American chattel slavery. Um, usually slaves were not regarded even as full fully human and certainly not as with their own rights and uh, property and things like that. But in this day, in Greco-Roman first century uh, slavery, um, it was possible for slaves to work as uh, teachers and doctors and uh, shop managers and city administrators and all, all kinds of different things. So slavery wasn't necessarily a, uh, like a, a socially demeaning kind of work, right? It wasn't always go out in the field and work, work until your, your back breaks, right? That's the kind of work that we associate with slavery in our more recent historical context. That wasn't always that way um, in, in the first century uh, in this context. So there's a number of, of ways that, uh, that it was different and, per, and probably a more humane system uh, and institution than the slavery that we, uh, that we think of. And I think it's reasons like that, honestly, that, that cause English Bible translators to sometimes prefer softer words 
like the ESV's bondservant. You saw as we read through that, uh, he calls them bondservants. Bondservants obey your earthly masters as a bondservant of Christ. That word is translating the Greek doulos, which really simply means slave. But because of the the, the difference in in those uh, in the system of slavery as it existed back then, uh, and the system of slavery that comes most readily to uh, our minds, uh, I think it's an attempt to convey the social and economic reality of this sort of indentured servitude without loading the phrase with the baggage and connotations of the word slave. And so uh, you have choices like this, where you read bond servants. Well, what's a bond servant? It's essentially a slave, but they're trying to demonstrate that it was not what you think of necessarily when you think of a slave uh, and a master. Um, it, it was a bit of a different system. Now, the, compar- the comparably humane character of slavery in the first century almost certainly explains, at least in part, why Paul and the other New Testament writers don't make stronger efforts to oppose the institution itself uh, or call unequivocally, for example, on Christian slaveholders to release their slaves. Uh, although the book of Philemon is quite possibly such a call. Uh, from the Apostle Paul to this one individual uh, slaveholder to release the slave Onesimus. We don't have time, obviously, to talk about Philemon, but that it is quite possible to, to read that letter as Paul saying, as a Christian, you really ought to release this brother in Christ from, uh, from servitude. But nevertheless, the New Testament writers aren't concerned with upending the sort of social structure uh, uh, of slavery as much as they are concerned with instructing and encouraging Christians to live in light of the gospel within the social structures where they exist, right? And because slavery was so common and so widespread in that culture, it would have been not only futile, but also probably counterproductive for the Christian message to become slavery needs to go away, rather than as a Christian who lives in this relationship of authority with somebody over you, there are ways that you ought to conduct yourselves. There are ways that you should live. And indeed, those who have authority over their bond servants, uh, have, there are ways in which they ought to conduct themselves as well in relating to their slaves. So we don't want to get stuck in the sand trap of you know, trying to excuse or defend uh, slavery as an institution. But it might be helpful to say, that the instructions that the apostles give, both to slaves and slaveholders, would likely make the ongoing practice of slavery, even this more humane version of it, difficult to continue. The renowned New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce once said that the Christian ethics of love, compassion, and gentleness would, quote, bring bring us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. And so it makes sense that over time, as Christian slaves and Christian slaveholders are instructed to live humbly, faithfully, obediently, respectfully uh, within those contexts with compassion and love and gentleness for one another, it makes sense that eventually at least Christians would start going, you know, maybe I shouldn't have a slave or maybe I shouldn't voluntarily enslave myself to somebody else. And so eventually that sort of uh, the power of that, that system begins to be done away with just by virtue of Christian character and Christian living. So the real question for us then becomes, with, all, with that kind of aside about slavery and the recognition, of course, that slavery 
doesn't exist in our time, in our culture, in our world, um, which is not to say that there aren't still forms of slavery going on. I don't mean to undercut that. But this sort of institutional economic system of slavery is not a reality for us now. Um, so the question becomes, what relevance does this passage have for us? Like, how can Christians today uh, benefit from verses like this? Um, since none of us are slaves or slaveholders, uh, should we just skip over uh, five verses in, the New in a New Testament letter that address the situation of slaves and slaveholders? Well, I don't think so. Uh, I believe that the Holy Spirit wants 21st century American Christians to learn from these verses and to live in light of the truths that they reveal. Uh, given the fact that uh, the slave and master relationship is obsolete um, in our context, I believe these verses teach us about how Christians are to live as those under authority and as those with authority over others. So you can broaden this and, 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 and see principles at play about how Christians should relate to authority. If you're under uh, authority of somebody else, here's how a Christian ought to live and respond to that authority. If you're a person that has authority over somebody else, here's the way that a Christian with authority should regard that authority and should treat those under his uh, authority. And so I believe we'll find some general and applicable principles for, for all of us as we regard our relationships uh, to authority. And in some situations, each of us probably is under authority and has authority over others in some sphere, right? And so there's, there's relevance for each of us uh, in, in no matter what sort of situation we find ourselves. So there's two big points. And he addresses each group, right? Slaves and masters, those under authority and those with authority. So here's the first one. To those under authority, faithfully serve for Christ's glory. If you are under authority, that is under another human being or institution who has a legitimate claim to authority over you, you should faithfully serve in that context for the glory of Christ. That's what verses 5 through 8 uh, unpack and, and, and exhort. <clears throat> he does this, uh, there, there's two sort of basic ways uh, to go about this. The first one is this. Uh, those under authority should seek to please Christ, not people. Seek to please Christ and not people. You see that in verse 5 uh, through 7, right? He says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Uh, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Right? So he's calling the attention of the one under authority, not to the human authority, but to the Lord Jesus, the one who is ultimately in authority over them. Notice how frequently in these verses references made to Christ specifically. In verse 5, as you would Christ, right? Obey your earthly master as you would Christ. Verse 6, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. There's a second mention. In verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord 
and not to man. There's the third reference to Jesus. Uh, Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. That is from the Lord Jesus himself. So repeatedly, he's calling the attention of the one under authority to remember and be mindful of Jesus. And in fact, the, the obedience that he's to offer the service that he's to provide to the one uh, under whose authority he lives is to be done not ultimately for the sake of the one in authority, but ultimately for the glory of Jesus. Remember chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this is an exact and immediate application of that. For those who live under authority, you should obey and serve humbly and gladly out of reverence for Christ with reference to his lordship in your life. Now, when he says in verse five, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, I think that the fear and trembling is intended to be directed toward God. I don't think that Paul means obey your earthly master out of fear of him as much as he means out of fear of God. Because again, the the reference here throughout these commands to obey and to submit is to Jesus, right? To, to his kingship, his authority, his lordship in your life. Paul is calling Christian slaves to fear God and therefore do his will in their submitting to their earthly masters, which is in keeping with the rest of this passage as he repeatedly instructs slaves to be obedient to servants, but not merely for, uh, be obedient servants, not two servants, but obedient servants, um, but not merely for the good of their masters or even to save their own skin, but out of reverence for Christ. He says in verse six, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Now, this is the one who serves uh, by way of eye service as a people pleaser is is the worker who's only on task when the boss is watching, right? Um, One of my boys has a shirt with stormtroopers on it and it says, look busy, Vader's coming, right? This, this is eye service. This is, uh, we're not really working hard, but when the boss shows up, we better look like we are. In reality, we're probably squandering time and resources, but when we know that the boss has his eye on us, we better look like we're working hard, right? That's, that's eye service. And so he says to, to, to slaves in this context, bond servants, um, to work hard, to work diligently, even when your boss isn't watching. It's not about what your boss thinks because... You know who else is watching? You know whose eye is always seeing and perceiving? No, it's not Saint Nick. It's the Lord Jesus. God is watching. God sees. And so our obedience to those in authority over us, our service to those in authority over us, even when those in authority over us don't know, even when we could trick them and fool them into thinking we're working hard when we're really not, our obedience when they're not watching is an act of worship to God. It's an act of service to him. Gospel-shaped living calls those under authority to work sincerely and diligently, whether your boss is looking or not, because you know the watchful eye of God is upon you. And your service is not ultimately for your boss or your teacher. It's for the Lord. He says, obey not as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. And now he makes explicit what he's been hinting at already. The true master of the Christian slave 
Again, when he's addressing slaves in this context, he's addressing those who are Christians, those who have trusted in Christ. The true master of a Christian slave is not the earthly master, but it's the Lord Jesus himself. A follower of Jesus who is under authority in this life is also to live under the lordship of Christ. And submission to the lordship of Christ will take the shape of faithful, obedient service to those in positions of authority over us. Finally, he calls them to render service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man. Oh, excuse me, actually backing up, sorry, verse 6. He says, uh, doing the will of God from the heart. I love that phrase, doing the will of God from the heart. I, I think it begins to get to the crux of, of what he's after here, what he's calling Christians to do. As we obey those in authority over us, we ought to be mindful of God's presence and seek to honor and please him with our humble obedience. I think this phrase gets, again, to the very crux of uh, the Christian's relationship to authority. Because of the gospel, we must seek to submit our lives to God's purposes and designs for us because we sincerely desire his pleasure. It simply comes down to that. Christian, do you desire to please the Lord? Is it your heart's hope and intention that God would look at your life and be pleased? It should be for those who name Jesus as Lord. And if it is, then part of what that means is living well under authority living humbly, faithfully, obediently under those that God has given some level of authority uh, over us. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. One of my favorite verses that's become favorite, uh, not because it makes me feel better necessarily, but favorite because it's so frequently convicting to me and I need this message over and over, is Galatians 1.10, part of which says, If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Serving Christ means I cannot be as concerned with what people are going to think about me. I cannot be as concerned with what opinions and judgments others might pass upon my life and my behavior. I can't even be as concerned with those immediately in authority over me and what they think. I ultimately have to be concerned with what Christ thinks. Does Christ look at my life my humility, my obedience, and my service. And is he pleased by that? Is he honored? Does he say, that's what a faithful Jesus follower lives like? That ought to be our goal. That ought to be our our aim. Seek to please Christ, not people. And the second sort of... uh, Uh, exhortation that he gives to those under authority, really kind of a motivation, I think, is uh, to remember the reward of obedience. Remember the reward of obedience. That's what he talks about in verse 8. He says, knowing, so you're you're to give uh, faithful obedience, uh, not as eye service, uh, as people pleasers, but doing the will of God from the heart. You're to do all this knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. God rewards obedience. God blesses the obedient life. Now that doesn't mean that everything's always going to be easy or comfortable or that he's not going to bring hardship 
into our lives to teach us and to train us and to, uh, to shape us into the image of Christ. But it does mean that when we choose intentionally to follow him, to honor him, even in these relationships of authority where we are under someone else's authority, when we do that and we live faithfully in obedience, it receives the blessing of God. God promises reward. And I think there's some senses in which that reward is here and now. There's the blessing of knowing uh, the life of obedience. There's the, there's the joy of knowing that I'm, I'm honoring God to the best of, of my ability. And I think my conscience is clear that God is pleased with, with the way I'm conducting myself in this or that arena of life. There's joy in that. Um, there is a general sort of principle of, you know, you reap what you sow. And if what I'm sowing is humility and faithfulness and obedience, then generally speaking, the reward from that is, is good fruit, right? There's fruit in my heart. There's fruit in my relationships. General fruit in my life that shows God's presence and God's blessing. But even more than that, in an even fuller way, I think the reward that he's pointing us to is, is the inheritance that's to come. Remember back in Ephesians chapter 1, he pointed us toward this inheritance. Your uh, inheritance is uh, sealed by the Holy Spirit, right? In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. God is storing up for you an eternal blessing, an eternal inheritance with your name on it. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he is storing up blessings for you that in the day and age to come, he will pour out on you in its fullness. He's guarding it. He's keeping it. The Holy Spirit has sealed us until that day and it will be ours. And if we'll live the faithful life of obedience and humility and service here, then the inheritance and reward that we have to come is that much greater. The Bible points us over and over to this reward. It's not, uh, it's not unbiblical or ungodly to think in that way. You know what? I should live an obedient life to God because it leads to reward. God rewards obedience. Your inheritance is in heaven. Faithful obedience to the structures of authority in our lives is an expression of our trust in God. And indeed, it's a statement of our confidence in the world to come. It's a statement of belief. You know, I think that there's a life coming. I think that there's an eternal kingdom after I die here, and I'm living for that one. That takes faith. That itself is a statement of trust in God. You see, the gospel transforms our, uh, our economic needs and, and relationships. Knowing Christ as my master releases me from the need to gain an advantage over others for myself uh, in the workplace or in society or whatever it, whatever it is. Knowing that my eternal inheritance is in Christ is secure, starves the sort of dog-eat-dog uh, instincts of greed and, and accumulation that so often characterize uh, our lives uh, in this world. When I sincerely and deeply believe that the Lord Jesus has purchased for me everything I'll ever need and that it is well with my soul, then I can loosen my grip 
on the material possessions and earthly comforts and even the sort of status and respect that we often crave. The gospel sets us free from the need to be in control, from the need to be rich, from the need to be comfortable. It sets us free to live like Jesus in faithful, humble service to others, including our employers, supervisors, governing officials, teachers, and anyone in a legitimate position of authority over us. When we live under that authority, mindful of God, mindful of his presence and his pleasure, mindful of the reward that is coming someday for those who follow him faithfully, we experience the blessing of obedience and our hearts are freed from the grip of earthly pleasures and comfort and possessions. And I think this is what he calls all Christians to. In this context, of course, he's, again, he's speaking to bond servants, those who are in a, an actual physical arrangement like this. But the principles apply all over the place. Anyone under whose authority we live, this is how we should carry it out. We should seek to please Christ and not men. And then in the final verse of the passage, verse 9, he turns his attention to those who hold authority. In this context, of course, that's masters or slaveholders, those to whom the slaves were obligated uh, with their uh, service and obedience. And so he has some instructions for them as well. Look at verse 9. He says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So when he says, do the same to them, I think he means basically this, lead them, right? Hold your authority with goodwill as to the Lord. Have your, hold your authority with goodwill toward those in service to you as to the Lord. Now, again, none of us hold slaves or have bond servants who are obligated to us, but some of us do have employees, students, others that live under our authority in one way or another. And I think this applies in those ways. Anyone who's under your authority, here's how you are to treat them, with, namely with goodwill. Now, when he says do the same to them, it's not, grammatically, it's not super clear what exactly Paul is referring to there uh, because there's not a, a reciprocal relationship there, right? He's called the servant, the servant to obey his master. So he certainly isn't saying to the master, you also obey your servant. That's not what he means by do the same. So I think what he's referring to is that, uh, is that uh, phrase in verse, uh, verse 7, uh, excuse me, verse 6, doing the will of God from the heart. I think that's the same call. You should do God's will as it pertains to your authority uh, from the heart for his sake, for his glory. In other words, those who hold authority over others, a boss, a supervisor, a teacher, a parent, an elected official, um, or some other leader are to seek the well-being of those in their charge for the sake of giving glory to God. So the slaveholder in this day, and as he heard the words of, of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the slaveholder should have thought, I need to treat my bondservants well. I need to treat them with respect and with gentleness and with compassion. 
And those of us who have authority over others should hear the same message. I should have goodwill toward those in my charge. I should treat with gentleness and respect and care those who live under my authority, not abusing my authority, but using it actually for their, for their good, for their blessing. He specifically urges them to stop threatening. And again, that points to the fact that this kind of arrangement could be, uh, could be, was vulnerable to, to abuse, right? The one who was in servitude to a master uh, was vulnerable uh, to the, the mistreatment of a master. In fact, you may remember that Peter actually calls slaves that he addresses in 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, to be obedient to their masters, not only to the just ones, but also to the unjust ones. So, like, so clearly, uh, there were uh, unjust masters. There were those who were treating their slaves harshly. And Peter gives the even harder word to say, even if you're mistreated, obey anyway, right? Again, not for their sake, but for Christ's sake. But so I think here when Paul speaks to, to uh, masters and tells them to stop threatening, I think broadly it means avoid harshness, avoid uh, you know, retaliation or seeking to, 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 to meet out punishment or, or justice in some way to those who are under your care. I'm going to make their life really hard, right? I'll show them who's boss. Ever uh, had a boss with that attitude? Ever been a boss with that attitude? Uh, that's not the way that a Christian should hold authority. Don't create a culture where uh, people under your leadership are afraid of you or resent you because of your inhumane dealings with them. Rather, afford them the respect and courtesy of considering their needs, their desires, their feelings in the way that you lead them. So if you hold any position of leadership or authority over somebody else, you are responsible before God to treat them well and to regard their well-being as your concern. I'm sure that you can identify from your own life uh, a favorite teacher, uh, a favorite boss. You look back on your life, man, I really loved working for that particular boss. Or man, I learned so much under that particular teacher's influence. And I'm guessing, if you have a person like that in your mind, I'm guessing that there is a strong probability that the person who comes to mind is someone who made you feel seen and cared for, not somebody who just threw their weight around and laid down the law and insisted that, you know, it's my way or the highway, right? Now, they may have challenged you. Um, they may have been strict, but you also knew that they desired your good. The best teachers are those who a student can tell, this teacher wants me to grow. This teacher wants me to learn and be better because of what I learn. The best bosses are those who their employees know, this boss desires my good. This boss wants me to succeed. He's not trying to keep me down. He's trying to help me to, to grow and to improve. Those are the kinds of bosses and teachers and leaders that we sort of gravitate toward and that we honor and, and respect and remember fondly. And that's because they're, in a way, representing the kind of Christian leadership that Christ is calling us to here. As those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, and who seek to shape our lives around the gospel, we must treat those under our authority with gentleness and respect out of reverence for Christ, as he said in chapter 5, verse 21. 
And then the main reason that Paul gives for not abusing your authority is how he ends uh, this, this passage. It's this, you and your servants share a master. You and your servant have the same master. Now, it may be that in this earthly system, you have a positional advantage over your employee, your student, your child, etc. But in the kingdom of God, we are all on a level playing field. Master and servant alike give account of themselves directly to their heavenly master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he shows no partiality. No position or status in this life will gain you an advantage with Christ. His judgments are true and righteous altogether. He doesn't grade on a curve. You are accountable for your life before him. Whether you're one under authority or you're one in authority over others, you give account to the Lord Jesus for how you lived in the situations that he placed you. By his providence. And that is a sober reminder. One aspect of your life that is subject to his judgment is the way that you treat those under your authority. So I know that we don't have any slaveholders in, uh, in the call today, um, but I know that we have teachers and employers and parents and other leaders. God's call to those of us in authority over others is out of reverence for Christ, out of a desire to please him and really to represent him in those relationships is to treat those under our authority with care, with respect, with gentleness, with honor. Well, this might not feel like a very Christmassy message as I sort of alluded to at the beginning, but consider this. Jesus Christ, the Lord and master of everyone who calls on him for salvation is not only the model master, but he also became the model servant for our sake. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. We turn our eyes toward Bethlehem where the eternal son of God, by whom all things were created and in whom all things hold together, the head of the body, the church, entered the darkness of our broken world, coming not as a conquering hero on a war horse, but as the peasant son of an obscure family in a humble barn behind an overcrowded inn. This is how he entered our world. Philippians 2 tells us that though he, that is the son of God, though he existed in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but empty himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, the greatest Christmas gift you will ever receive is the incarnation of the Son of God. The reality that Jesus Christ took your weakness and sin upon himself, carried them to a cross, and sacrificed himself to atone for your sins and reconcile you to God forever. You can have Jesus as your gentle, loving master 
if you'll first have him as your humble servant savior. This is who Jesus is. This is what he came to do. If you'll admit your sin and turn to Jesus Christ in simple faith, the gift of eternal life will be yours. And no one can take that away. Let's pray together.